Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is September 29th, 2014. This is broadcast number 70. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming into studio, as it were, it's really my office, but anyway, for the next hour it's a studio. So we're going to consider that as a studio. But we have the pleasure of welcoming the seminary president and... um, and faithful guest on the program today to do Faith and Practice segment number nine. Now, for those of you who don't know exactly what this is and, uh, and how it all works, it's very simple. If you have questions of a theological, practical nature, you can simply write in to the, um, to the podcast by using the form on the ConfessingOurHope.com website. Yes, we do have a website, doesn't everybody? We have a website, ConfessingOurHope.com. There's a form there you can fill out, simply submit your question, and then we will receive a copy of it. And then it may or may not be used on the program. Now, just a little insider information. We haven't turned anybody's questions away yet. So send your question in and we'll use it uh, more than likely on the program. And if we do do that, then you are probably going to receive, in fact, you will receive a book um, postpaid here from the seminary. So take advantage of that opportunity as you are able, and then you will hear your question and answer read live on the air. And I should mention that this is a live program of Confessing Our Hope, doc, uh, Confessing Our Hope podcast, and you can access that simply by following the information that is on the website. So, Dr. Pipe, it's good to have you on the program today. Normally, I do a bunch of nonsensical housekeeping things at this point, but since we only have an hour, I want to make sure that we um, actually um, go ahead and jump into the questions that we have today. I forgot the number, but um, anyway, we'll get through them, I think. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. All right. Our first question today comes in from uh, Terry, Karn, uh, Terry from um, from Pennsylvania. I can't even pronounce the, the city, honestly. <laughs> I grew up in that part of the country, but regardless, um, he writes in and says, we are cautioned in Scripture not to lay hands on men for leadership hastily. What would you recommend as a practice for recognizing, training, and proving men as elders in the local church? Now, there's a follow-up question as well. Um, he says, do you have any recommendations for the ongoing training, education, and discipleship of the men already on the session? Well, Terry, I think this is probably one of the most important issues before the church today, really are in any age. I think the church suffers greatly because of unqualified or ill-prepared, or both, elders. And so, on the first part, it must be a commitment of the pastor and the elders to have an ongoing development program of discipleship for men. And really, that should begin uh, following Paul's pattern from Second Timothy 2, men teaching men teaching men. And so, the church should be committed to men teaching men, couples, discipling couples, and getting people grounded well in the doctrines and practice of the Reformed faith with accountability that's a part of discipleship. I have a book to help with that that also addresses the elder question. It's called Studies in the Westminster Confession, but it's really discipleship material, topical questions key to the Westminster Standards. 
and it takes a person or a couple through all the doctrines and practices of uh, the Christian life. Uh, next, there ought to be a good program of adult education in the church. And so, again, the men and women of the church are getting grounded in, in Bible content, doctrine, history, practical issues. You couple that with discipleship and uh, good textual preaching, you've got the soil ready for the development now of elders. Now, the elders should be watching men in the church, and as they see a man that is showing spiritual maturity in his family, in his personal life, they should create opportunities for him to get exposure to how to teach. Don't just throw him into the classroom, but help him uh, prepare to teach, put him into some teaching situations, see how he does there. And the men that begin to manifest gifts uh, would go through the next stage, which would be the training. Now, in my denomination, there's a nomination process that takes place, and people in the congregation who should also be looking at men uh, can nominate to the session men to be trained for the eldership, and the elders may also nominate men. Then there, are, uh, there should be a program of training both in doctrine and in the work of the eldership, at the end of which time the elders would examine the men and then would approve those whom they thought were ready to be elders and present them to the congregation for the congregation to vote. And so that's some practical ways. There are a lot of, of good tools available. Uh, Pastor Carl Robbins, one of our board members, pastor here in town of Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church, has an excellent officer training program. I think if you contacted him, he'd make that available to you. I've got an officer training program. Um, and so there are things that you can do. There's some other books you can use either for, for the preparation or for ongoing officer discipleship. Did you read the second question already? I did. Okay. So the second part of the question was, uh, any recommendations for the ongoing training, education, discipleship of men already in the session? Uh, Jay Adams has uh, a book called uh, Shepherding the Flock that is a very useful book. Uh, there is a book by uh, a couple of Christian Reform ministers, uh, Bergoff de Coster, a manual, manual for elders that is very useful. Samuel Miller has a good book for eldership. George Scipione has a book on training elders. You can use these in your training process. You also can use them with the session. Read a chapter uh, a week, uh, a meeting, and then come in and discuss it. Charles Bridges, The Christian Ministry, C.H. Spurgeon, Lectures to My Students, a number of other, Murphy and others, a number of pastoral uh, theologies. You also can read theology with your elders and have uh, assign a chapter in uh, maybe start with Burkhoff's Manual of Christian Doctrine, assign a chapter, come in and discuss that. Uh, really, sky's the limit. You can study with them worship, evangelism, pastoral care. Let me just say that with respect to pastoral care, it's probably one of the greatest failures today in our churches with our ministers and our elders. And in my experience, I've seen a lot of elders that wanted to visit, but they were afraid to visit. They didn't know how to visit. Uh, 
part of our training program was that in the classroom part, we would go over pastoral visitation, how to conduct it, how to conduct hospital visitation. Then we would do role plays, and I would assign different roles to people. And uh, role play is a very good way for a person to begin to see how they would think in a, in a live situation. And then the men that are elected, I would take them out with me on some pastoral visits, after which we would have a debriefing. I'd explain why I did what I did, ask them what they would have done in a certain situation. Then once or twice, I would accompany them on a visit and debrief again. Then they have their confidence. And I think that the really called ruling elder who has this confidence will do the visitation. So thank you for the question. Yes, it's a very good question. And, and, and might I add also, there is, um, we here at the seminary, we have a program that will help ruling elders. Why don't you tell them Thank about you, that Bill. as well? Sure. We have a, a Master of Ministry for Ruling Elders and a Master of Ministry for Deacons. And a man that is a ruling elder or deacon may take that program automatically. Uh, other men in the church, though, may take either one of those uh, degrees, or it's a two-year degree. can be done over a period of time. It can all be done by distance. But th this is our regular curriculum material, and it just helps uh, elders and deacons do their job better. So you can register for that, take it. We've got a number of men in both programs. We've had a couple of graduates in the elder program, and we do it to serve the church. I'm glad you thought of that. Yep. Excellent resource as well as the others that were mentioned. Now, Mel writes in uh, from Colorado, and he asked a question related to the subject of church discipline. He writes, what did Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 5.5? Are there some sins that are so grievous in the church that when they are found out, the guilty party or parties are to be put out of the church without following the steps given in Matthew 18? Well, Mel, that's a timely question. Uh, remind folks of the context. This is the man that was committing incest. He was with his uh, father's wife. When Paul learned about that, he said the man needed to be excommunicated immediately. Now, I'm glad you took us back to uh, Matthew 18, because there's a great deal of confusion here, and we often hear it even in the church courts when we discuss discipline. Let me just point out that Matthew 18 has to do with private offenses. And so this is the procedure that is to be followed. Hmm. And if you know someone's sinning or you think they've sinned, you go to them in private. If they don't repent, and you still think they're sinning, you go back with witnesses. And if they still have not repented, and you still think they're sinning, you take them then to the session. The session will then deal with them, and if the session is convinced after a, a church trial that the person has uh, indeed sinned and refuses to repent, then they will excommunicate them. But that's a private offense. Uh, did Paul do that with uh, Peter in um, Antioch? No. He immediately confronted him publicly for his sin. Uh, public sins have a different uh, approach, particularly when they're serious public sins, such as Peter's actions, which really denied the gospel, or this case, a gross overt immorality in the church. So there was no question what was going on. Everybody knew about it. And so Paul didn't say, begin Matthew 18. Paul said, put this person out of the church that they might repent, and we know that person did repent, and that is the purpose of excommunication. Very good. 
and a difficult subject, I think, for, well, just a difficult subject. And actually works really nicely with the first question that we had on the list as far as elders and their role and responsibilities. And I lost my place. Go ahead. Don't mention her name. I wish she lives. Oh, yeah, yeah. Way ahead of you. <laughs> way ahead of you on that one. Um, anyway, we have a, a, a listener who writes in and asks this question. I've heard that we should not pray asking the Lord to come and be present with us in a worship service because God has promised in his word that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he will be also. What do you think? Is it improper to pray this way? Great question. No, it's not. It's very proper because the promises of God are to be prayed. That's why God gives them to us. Take David, First Samuel, Second Samuel 7. God promises him a son, a dynasty, the Messiah. David immediately turns those things into prayers that God would do them. Uh, Daniel reads in Jeremiah that after 70 years of captivity, the people are going to return to the land. That's a promise. God said it's going to happen. It couldn't fail. But Daniel turns that into a, a prayer. And so we are to pray the promises of God, and we may do so with great boldness. God delights in our doing so. Now, with respect to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we also have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but we're taught that we are to seek to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And so we pray to be filled with the Spirit. doesn't mean that we have more of the Spirit, but it means that we uh, are submitting to his ruling in our lives through our, his impulses and Scripture. And that's walking or being led by the Spirit. So as we gather for corporate worship, God has promised us that we would be in his presence in a very special manner beyond the two or three in a prayer meeting. And so as we approach God's presence, as the elders have summoned us there with the call to worship, well, then it's very fitting to pray what God has promised, and that is the Spirit would fill us. But we also, when we make that prayer, we need some things. We need to have our hearts disciplined. We need our affections stirred up. We need to have our minds not wandering. And so we're not just asking the Spirit to come. We're asking the Spirit to enable us to uh, worship in God's glorious presence in a way that's going to be to his glory and then to um, our well-being. Yeah, very good question. And, I, and I, as I read the question, Dr. Pipe, and I, maybe this is kind of a follow-up thought, but if that were the case, I mean, I, I'm thinking about some of the basic prayers in Scripture where Christ, even on the Sermon on the Mount, said that we pray to our Father, give us this day our daily bread, but we know that God has also promised to provide for all of our needs. Mm -hmm. So should we not pray that prayer? Right. You know, there's just so many different ways you could go with this, and I think God is um, very pleased when his children pray back his promises That's well, so how we have him. promises. Yep. We might live by them, and that part of that living by them is praying them. Absolutely. Very good question, and um, thank you for writing in uh, with it. Just, Bill, why don't you remind anybody that's listening live that we also are taking uh, questions uh, on Twitter? I don't need to remind them. You just did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we are taking questions on Twitter. If you are listening live and you do want to get your question in even during the program, um, you can do that by simply um, writing a tweet to at GPTS Podcast, 
and put the hashtag in faith and practice nine faith and practice nine is the hashtag i am tracking those in real time so if you do send the question in could be even something that we say in an answer here and follow-up question that's fine um this is your program so take advantage of that opportunity i do know a number of people are listening right now so um i can actually see (laughs) the numbers so um take advantage of that if you do have twitter then you can use that if not write think of a question write it down now and send it in for the next edition we'll certainly deal with it now Mel, again, I think it's the same Mel <laughs> from Colorado. If not, it's, uh, well, anyway, Mel from Colorado writes in, and he asks this question. A few months ago, I heard in a sermon that Jacob's wrestling with the angel was his conversion. I would like to know what you think about this statement. If you agree, then I would like to know how we are to read Jacob's vow at Bethel in Genesis 28 and his prayer in chapter 32, verses 9 through 11. Well, Mel, I uh, think that Jacob was uh, converted already, and I think that, in fact, God's appearing to him, making those promises, his vow, his subsequent prayer, uh, shows that he was converted man. Paul shows there's a clear distinction from the very beginning between Jacob and Esau. So the wrestling with God uh, at the brook really is uh, a type of uh, or example of prayer. Hmm. This is where Jacob was taking hold of God and pleading with God and not letting go till he was assured of God's uh, protecting him and uh, honoring the promises that he had made. And so we, uh, we talk about Jacob's wrestling with God as Jacob's praying. And in fact, we apply that figure then uh, to we want to learn to wrestle with God in prayer. This ties in well to the question with respect to praying for the Holy Spirit in worship. Praying for the Holy Spirit in worship. God wants us to enforce our petitions with reasons drawn from his character, his promises, his word. He wants us to persevere. He wants us to pray and not lose heart. You remember the parable that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 11. He's prayed. His disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. He gives them the form of the the Lord's Prayer. And then he gives them this parable in verse 5. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, but because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And that word translated in the New American Standard, persistence, is literally shamelessness. And there Christ is teaching us that we are to be shameless when we come and plead uh, with God. That we are to be just like Jacob. We take hold of God through his promises and we don't let go until he has shown us clearly what he's going to do in response to our prayer. And so Christ would go on to say then, ask, seek, and knock, and those are all present tense verbs. 
Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Ask will be given you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be opened unto you. And so Jacob is a figure there of how all of us want to learn to wrestle with God in prayer. Yeah, very good question. And one, I think by and large that we gain, we glean this whole wrestling ideology in prayer from Jacob's wrestling. Um, very encouraging passage. If you're dealing with issues, you know, struggles, you, know, you lay hold of God and, and not let go, just like Jacob did. It's, it's always amazing to me how Jacob prevailed over God in that encounter. Um, just think about that for a few minutes. All right, we have a couple questions on this edition that come from... I believe they're both from Brazil. Brazil. And um, not surprising because you were just, you were there, when was the last, you were just there. It's been over a year now. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we have a number just, of listeners. Just goes to show you how fast time goes. Brazil, so. That's right, we do. And um, I, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can with the names. Is it Israel? Call him Israel. Israel. He writes in and asks, what is your interpretation about Matthew 24? <laughs> this is a great, great subject. I'm glad this question was asked. This ought to be interesting. What is your interpretation about Matthew 24? Do you think that Jesus was referring only to the destruction of the temple or, uh, or only the end of days or both? Thank you, Israel. Well, if we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, uh, context is always important. And so Jesus in verse 2 tells his disciples, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So then he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. It's across the brook Kidron looking at the temple. And some of his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now you see they've asked three questions. They've not asked one question. They've asked first, when is the temple going to be torn up? Hmm. Now, because in their minds, they could not envision that reality or that fact taking place without the uh, coming and the end of the age, they probably think it's all going to happen together. They still were a bit confused in the book of Acts uh, when you're going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus had to correct them again. So he begins to answer uh, the first question. And in a sense, one half of the second question. And take a parenthesis, Israel. Um, The word for coming, there's three different words in the Greek that are used for coming, can refer to the second coming, but also can refer to Christ's coming in judgment are Christ coming to in grace to bless his church and deliver his people. Now, in their minds, the coming in judgment and the end of the age, again, were going to be almost simultaneous with the destruction of the temple. But that's not how the Bible presents the coming of Jesus. So Jesus begins to talk about the destruction of the temple and his coming in judgment. And he's talking now about what is going to take place uh, in 70 A.D. 
even when he uses language such as in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Uh, that is language out of the prophets that had to do with destructions of kingdoms. It was used of uh, pagan kingdoms and uh, in the Old Testament prophets. And so this is language, we call it apocalyptical language, that prophesies the end of the Jewish state and the uh, Old Covenant temple. And the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. And this is his coming now again in judgment. As you read through this, then, we get to verse 34. And now Christ looks back at everything he has said. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now this generation, most people would admit, means the Jews that were living in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will try to take it to be the Jewish race will not pass away. But the, the more obvious reading is that generation of people. He had used it earlier before the transfiguration mm -hmm. in the book of Matthew. And so I believe that uh, everything that's prophesied there uh, was fulfilled uh, in the destruction of the temple and the worldwide spread of the gospel, which is the angels going out to the end and gathering the elect. But I also believe that in the things prophesied here that we see how God will deal with people throughout the ages and what the church will go through. So, in a sense, just as Old Covenant prophecies were organic in that they would have uh, an immediate fulfillment and then a, uh, a farther off, further off fulfillment. Uh, there's principles here about what we can expect throughout the age. But notice the transition then in verse 36. But of that day and hour, now he's picking up on the third part of their question, uh, and that is the end of the age. Of that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the father alone and then he says in terms of the end of the age that final coming of the son of man has not been given to him to reveal and that is something that is known to the triune god and to him alone good question and i do have a follow-up um what what you don't mind if I ask this question. I don't think. Oh. What's your what's your what's the technical term of your view of the end times eschatology? Hmm. We got amillennialism, post postmillennialism. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. Well, it's uh, <laughs> it's the technical term, although it's 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 fairly confusing, is postmillennialism. But modern postmillennialists would agree with. Well, let me explain to our hearers. There's been three traditional uh, words, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And the millennialism is a thousand years of Revelation chapter 20. 
And so the premillennialist believes that Christ is going to come visibly uh, establish his throne and mm -hmm. reign for a thousand years on earth. The Amils believe that the thousand-year reign is simply the age in which we live between um, the ascension of Christ and the second coming. Hmm. And today, almost all post-Mills would agree that uh, the millennium, in fact, is the age in which we live. But a more modern post-millennialist who bases his exegesis on that view will say, though, that uh, the kingdom of Christ is increasingly coming with greater power and success. Now, it's not like a graph going up. We, in our own, in the West now, see a lot of declension, but other places in the world, there are great advances taking place uh, today, and it's not just broad evangelicalism, it's, it's the Reformed faith. And I have no reason to think that uh, We'll not see it someday in the future. Maybe the, I won't live to see it, but uh, revival and reformation again in the West. But if you even just think about how many more Christians are on the earth now hmm. than there were 2,000 years ago, than there were 50 years ago. Hmm. Uh, but we base this primarily on the Old Testament prophecies of the uh, glorious dominion of Christ. I think the term I think the term I was going for, though you're obviously right. I would never disagree. <laughs> um, well, that's at least not on the air. But um, there, there's a view in the church, uh, a preterism. I think that's the word I was going for. Um, a uh, preteristic. Let's talk about preterism because that's you can be a post mill and not be a preterist. Okay, all right. Then that's what I was going for. I gave um, Israel a preterist interpretation of Matthew 24. And that means that most of the events were fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. I also hold to a preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation that most of the book was fulfilled either in the destruction of the temple or in the destruction of the Roman Empire. So from our perspective, preterist simply means it's in the past tense. But as I've already said, even though it was in the past tense, it still has ramifications uh, for the entire age in which we live. But there is a radical preterist view. Mm -hmm. that, uh, And so when you hear preterist, you must uh, always define. There's a radical preterist view that teaches that all the promises with respect to the second coming were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, that Christ came back then, has established his reign, and there is no physical resurrection. And no future judgment. And no future judgment. That, that people that are, die outside of Christ die and go to hell. And so uh, that's not what we mean by preterist. That's not if somebody tells you they have a preterist interpretation of Matthew 24, Revelation. Um, it's not that uh, heresy which I think radical preterism is. You have a good critique of that in Cornell Venema's book on the uh, end times, where he talks about biblical preterism and then radical preterism. Yep. And I just wanted to cl make sure that that was clearly Well, I didn't use set. the term. No, right. I, but 
I know it's it, funny things happen in the, when you start talking about eschatology. It just oh, yeah. people get really excited about it, and honestly, it's not my favorite subject. I mean, it should be, I guess. A, anyway, doesn't matter. But I think it's the first time on of all the editions that we've done. The first question that we've actually had on eschatology, which is interesting to me, considering that people really get usually get really worked up and excited about the subject. Um, anyway, just a passing thought. I do have a question that has come in, but we'll come to that when we finish the list of Good. people that have written in, since we do have plenty of time in front of us still. Um, uh, I, I want to say Manuel. Manuel. Manuel, okay. I'm glad I have somebody who's been to Brazil help me with these. Well, this is a very good friend of mine. Um, but he writes in, and, and a very simple question, what means or what is the meaning of solemn worship and what are the origins and implications for our days? Uh, I think by the question, uh, Manuel is getting to the uh, the importance of reverence in worship. In John chapter 4, Jesus says that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And the truth is both in the fulfillment of what Christ has done as well as according to uh, the regulations for worship laid down in Scripture, which were given to us by Christ in the second commandment. Now, to worship in spirit means that our worship is to be indicted, motivated, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Mm. So we worship God the Father through God the Son and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, when I teach worship, there are three implications for worshiping and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first um, is that it must be heart worship. We often quote uh, Christ's condemnation from Isaiah 29 that you worship God according to the doctrines of men, but we skip the other part. Uh, you worship and you say the words in your heart are far from him. Uh, spiritual worship is heart worship. We must seek to worship God intelligently with our minds, our hearts devoted to uh, to him. Second, worship in the Holy Spirit is simple worship. And I use a, a figure, portability. Biblical worship can be taken anywhere. You got a Bible, you got a flask of wine, some bread, and a little bit of water, and you have a worship, and a worship service. Uh, it's simple. The old covenant worship was much more complex. New covenant worship is much more simple. But the third part of worshiping in spirit is that it's a worship that is full of reverence and awe. It's very interesting in Hebrews chapter 12, after the writer has contrasted the old covenant with the lightning and thunder of Mount Sinai and the gentleness of the new covenant, we've come to the uh, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriads of angels, general assembly, church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Great contrast. Reminds us of all the liberty and privileges of the new covenant. But then there's this exhortation. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, 
But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and that's the contrast, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We must not think that because of the new liberties of the new covenant worship that we uh, just come willy-nilly, casually, uh, irreverently into the presence of God. No, the Bible says that we're to come with reverence and awe. He is the holy, triune, transcendent, majestic God clothed in light, unapproachable. We approach him because we are in Christ and we are accepted. But our hearts should be framed with reverence and awe. We are in the courts of heaven. We are mingling with angels and the souls of just men made perfect. And does this mean that there's no happiness and joy in worship? No, and Calvin Mm. actually addresses uh, that issue. Uh, Reverence and solemnity doesn't mean there's not joy. The Psalms are full of worship God with shout, with exuberance. There's to worship God with our entire body. And so there is to be joy, but it's not to be levity. Uh, sometimes uh, I go to a service, and as it's being led, I think I'm really watching the, uh, the Jimmy Fallon show on television. Uh, there's just a levity and uh, a, a marked less respect. I don't think that's a word. Anyway, a markedly disrespectful attitude. Well, let me interject right there because that's a good But I want to add something else. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, it, you, please do. Um, why do you think, I mean, we see this in our culture. I mean, we, we've talked about this in Reform Worship and we've been through all this, but the listeners weren't there. Um, we see so much of this levity in worship in our culture, even in Reform circles of all places. Why? Why is that going on? I mean, they wouldn't necessarily characterize it as levity, but we look at it. On the out, we, we come into that and we think, man. Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, one is we are in a very casual, uh, careless culture. And unfortunately, the culture is creeping into the church. And that's the other thing I want to speak about in just a moment. But to follow through here with Bill's question uh, first, the sincere people are trying to make the church attractive to the ungodly because they want to reach them with the gospel. And I admire the motive, but worship is not designed by God to reach the ungodly. It's designed by God to be communion, covenant uh, dialogue Mm. between him and his people. Now, we want the ungodly present. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when they are and God is present, they'll fall on their faces, not from levity. I tell people that if an unconverted person is in your worship service and he leaves comfortable, then you know he's not been present. Mm. And that's God. 
He should leave under conviction. He should leave angry or converted. I think those are the three things. Maybe depressed, but but not happy. Because the presence of God doesn't make an ungodly person happy. And so we've got to get back to the purpose of worship. I mm-hmm. begin the worship course with Psalm 100, dealing there with the purpose, the nature, the character of worship. You can also uh, hear that message. It's some sermon audio there under the purpose of worship, Psalm 100. But this, so there's the, the levity that's coming in from the culture, the desire to reach modern man. But the other direction I wanted to go was with this, the levity and the casualness from the culture. I am quite appalled when I'm in some of our better churches. I was in a church recently where there was a man that uh, was an office bearer. And he was there in the evening service. Now, praise God, they have an evening service, and he was there. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's what he said to me. At least I'm here. But I jokingly said to him, I said, I see you got out of the house in your little boy pants tonight. <laughs> his <laughs> wife was standing there, and she appreciated that a great deal. He says, well, at least I'm here. I said, well, you are, and I'm, I thank God you're here. But we, because of the loss of reverence, because the culture has taken over the church in so many different ways, um, we now have become very casual in God's presence. We would not be this casual. I remember, and I use this illustration, when the Atlanta Braves in the 1990s went to won the World Series, and then they got the typical invitation to go visit the president. All over the locker room was uh, posters, you're going to see the president of the United States, you be sure you have on a coat and tie. Mm. Basketball coaches still wear coats and ties. We, I mean, I realize that even our our leaders dress down when they're campaigning or out and about, but if they're at a formal function, they have on formal dress. Now, we're coming to the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, and uh, now, even in Sunday mornings, we're seeing more and more casualness in our dress. I mean, I, I just recently, again, saw gym shorts in the worship service. Are people sitting there drinking their lattes or their bottle of water in, uh, in, in the worship service? See, all of this I consider to be irreverent. I don't think this is, in, with me, a cultural hangover. I'm a product of, of the hippie generation. You talk, you might, I was casual when, as a young Christian. I was casual and informal. And so this is not uh, coming out of of uh, cultural preferences is coming out of conviction. The other thing where we see this happening is, and I thank God for the churches that continue to have an evening service. Mm. I believe that's clearly a strong, strongly implied biblical requirement. But almost everybody dresses down on Sunday night, and I want to ask them, what's the difference? Well, is the Sunday evening service different from the morning service? Well, it shouldn't be. I appreciate it at, uh, again, I mentioned uh, Pastor Robbins. He preaches with a preaching robe. And a lot of churches you go, the pastor have the preaching robe on in the morning, but not tonight. But he preaches in that preaching robe morning and evening in order to make the point there's not an iota of difference in the services. And so we do need, you remember when the children of Israel went 
to meet with God at Mount Sinai, God told him to uh, clean up, dress, take a bath, and dress up. And we are to worship God in the beauty of holiness, uh, but we're to worship God in reverence as well. Now, one of the things we hear again, well, but the person that uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't own a coat and tie, you don't want them to feel uncomfortable. By no means. And as long as you are warm and welcoming to such a person, they don't feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so you don't even let it, anything about you portray the fact that you think they're underdressed. But uh, you just warmly welcome them. And if a person is serious, he doesn't own a coat and tie, I say, well, you get your best pair of blue jeans and you don't work in them. You keep them pressed. You get your best work shirt. Keep it clean and pressed. And you wear it to church. That's the best you have. And that's fine. But I'd love to tell a story about the gentleman that is our uh, maintenance man here at the seminary. John was converted right here in the neighborhood. He was a drunk. Started going to the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church that was at that time renting from the seminary. They now own our, own our old building. Uh, and John, as he was converted and grew, he would come cleaner and cleaner to church, but he didn't own a coat and tie. And then one day, I see him, and he is so excited because there was a suit in the seminary uh, clothes closet that fit him, and there was a tie. Nobody had ever, ever said to John, John, you should have a coat and tie on. Um, everybody loved him and loved his being there, but on his own, when he could, he did. And now he would never show up at a service without a coat and tie. Again, no one's ever told him to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think the argument's valid. And, I, you know, and now we've got preachers up on stools and in blue jeans and muscle shirts and everything else. And, um, yeah, way too much liberty. I, I thank you, Dr. Manuel Canuto, because you gave me a chance to get on one of my hobby horses and gave me a... A really good audience for this. So maybe we'll get some follow-up questions. Yeah, and, and just to ma imagine what it was like for a week on this subject. So <laughs> I, you got a very short, condensed version of what we heard at Monday through Friday on this this subject. But it's not because it's not important. It's not just a hobby horse. It's it. This is really important stuff. And um, I think if we think about it more and more, um, we'll realize. I was hoping you would tell that story. Of John. I read your mind. Yeah, you must have, which is amazing. That you have a mind to be read. <laughs> that you have a, I have a mind to be read. We do have a question that came in from a listener, um, and we uh, just just to do a time check, we have 13 minutes um, available to us live, um, and there are a number of people listening. But I do want to read this question now. It's a question, let me preface this up front, because um, Dr. Pepe has absolutely no idea what this question is, but it's one that we have dealt with numerous times on the program. And... Um, and it does come up from time to time, even in writers, uh, people who write in. So um, the question is simply this, and I lost track of it. Here it is. The uh, listener writes in, he says, A friend says that 1 Corinthians 11 has nothing to do with whether children should or should not uh, be in communion. Hmm. Will you please give us an interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 and explain how this passage can be used um, against pedo communion? Okay. Uh, I'm indebted to Dr. George Knight uh, for the structure of this passage. He points out that Paul does here what Paul often does. So, 
Paul begins by dealing with uh, a complaint that has come to him. That some people in the Corinthian church are abusing uh, the Lord's Supper. And he concludes and transitions, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. Now he gives the words of institution. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you. And he simply takes the gospel, uh, institution of the Lord's Supper, and now gives it to the church. And verse 27, he reaches a conclusion. Therefore, Hmm. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, he is not at this point addressing the particular issue. He's gone back to the scriptural principle, and now he has made a spiritual, doctrinal, ethical application. Notice the therefore, right out of the words of the institution. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now notice the so then. Now he goes back to the problem. Mm -hmm. So he states the problem, gives a biblical foundation, draws out a biblical principle uh, in which he says that those who come need to come reverently, examining themselves, and discerning the body of Christ, lest they... Uh, eat and drink judgment to themselves. And he said, in fact, there have been some who are guilty of that. Now, there's two terms here that we need to pay attention to. Examine oneself and discerning the body. Now, many of the opponents of, uh, proponents of pedo-communion will say that this is not the body of Christ uh, seen in the elements, but it is the body they're abusing the body of the church by coming together uh, and violating one another in this way. Well, I think it's both. I think the body of Christ needs to be discerned. Otherwise, we're not communing with him. But we also, communion is, has said something about the unity of the church body. But even if you took the first one, notice there's got to be self-examination. So whether if, if you still say he must examine himself and discern the body, there still is a matter of self-examination and spiritual discernment that must be exercised. And uh, a little child cannot do either one of those things. So I don't think this text in any way um, can do anything but condemn the practice of pedo-communion. Yes, very good. And and as I've indicated, we have dealt with this um, in the past, um, maybe not specifically with 1 Corinthians 11, but don't quote me on that because I don't remember. Um, so if you go back and, and, and look at the, the past broadcast, we've dealt with this, I think, on two or three separate faith and practice episodes. Um, there's just certain topics that always seem to come up. Um, 
And so we've dealt with them numerous times. And so if you go back, you can get even more fuller um, discussion on this as well. Fuller. How would you have said it? Fuller. More fuller? No. <laughs> and, and just so you know, after every broadcast, I get critiqued on my grammar. <laughs> or sometimes even in the middle of it. But, uh, okay, that's just a little bit of fun. Um, but anyway. But that concludes uh, the questions that have been written in um, to date, uh, that people have written uh, us uh, about uh, to date. And so what we want you to do is sit down at your computer and uh, go to the website, confessingourhope.com. And you can write in any question that you have. Um, we, we touched on one that I don't think uh, that I mentioned in the program. It was relatively, I think, new uh, to our discussion, and that was on eschatology. So if you have further questions on that subject especially, please write in, and, um, and we'll be glad to deal with those on the air. But really, nothing is off limits. Um, so please write in and follow us on Twitter. It's simply at GPTS Podcast, um, GPTS Podcast, all one word. Uh, on Twitter, and additionally, Dr. Piper's Twitter account, and I have to, you know, it's sad. It's sad Piper Jr. But I have to look it up every time. You gave it to me. I, I, right, and I'm the one who made it. Well, by the way, Bill, so. we're going to do the next uh, uh, podcast on uh, Monday afternoon, October 20th. So get those questions in, and it'll probably, is this the time slot we're going to use, 3 o'clock? 3 o'clock, if that so works for you, it works for me. 3 o'clock, Monday afternoon, October 20th. So tell your friends. We might by then actually be doing a live video broadcast as well. That is the, the goal to move towards so you can see Bill's uh, mug. So thank <laughs> no, you all for listening. Not really. Yes, and so please take advantage of this opportunity to, um, to get your questions heard on the air. Get a book. Hey, free books. You know, they're, they're always, it's always a good thing. Um, what's coming up on the program? I do have um, tentatively scheduled for next week. Um, a sit down with a couple first year students at the seminary. We've done this, I, I think, every year I've been here, and it, it's a good opportunity, especially for those uh, out there who are considering a seminary education, who may believe that God is calling them to the work of the ministry, to get kind of an insider's look at what it's really like inside the halls at seminary. It's you know, it, it it's work. It's hard work, and. Um, so I usually sit down with a couple first-year students after they've been here for a number of weeks and they've kind of got their feet wet. And we talk candidly about their experiences and what called what brought them to uh, seminary, especially what brought them to Greenville Seminary. And uh, so look forward to that next week. Um, I don't exactly know who those people will be right now, but I have an idea. So just stay tuned to the website, confessingourhope.com. That's where all the information will be in addition to other broadcasts that we're lining up. Uh, as we speak. So until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.